The following programming has been made possible in part by the generous support of BITS, Blind Information Technology Specialists. An affiliate of the American Council of the Blind, BITS provides career development for computer professionals. For over 50 years, BITS has been on the forefront of industry, promoting and advocating on information access and technology that improves the quality of life for people who are blind and visually impaired. Learn more about BITS programs and how to become a member by visiting their website at www.bits-acb.org. Opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and do not necessarily reflect views held by the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to ACB History Book Discussion Group. I'm Christy Crespin. I'm so honored and excited to be here today. I also would like to welcome our participants on the uh, on our Zoom this morning. Today is June fifteenth, and we are talking about People of Vision, a history of the American Council of the Blind by James J. and Marjorie L. Mega, I pronounce it wrong, McGivern. And uh, it was published in 2003 by the American Council of the Blind. We have today, our uh, streamer is Larry Gassman. Thank you, Larry. And our host today is David Dunphy, who is going to describe what the protocol is for this call. Thank you, David. Okay. Um, and if you guys are not, if you're not speaking, you know, try to keep your audio muted just so we don't have an ex- excessive background. You can do that by hitting on the computer. It's Alt-A, and that's a toggle, so you can do that to mute and unmute. Um, on the telephone, it is star six, and to unmute and unmute, and um, command shift A on the Mac, and to raise your hand when um, Chrissy asks you questions, it is alt Y on the PC, and again, that's a toggle, so you can raise and lower your hand with the same keystroke, uh, star nine on the phone, and is um, option Y on the Mac if you want to raise your hand. And again, that's a toggle. So, And that's how you will be able to um, raise your hand or mute or unmute your audio as you need to. Thank you, David. And I would like to uh, ask Larry, if he would, to uh, talk about any updates that we have regarding the recordings, regarding the cassette uh, with Derward McDaniel. For those of you who weren't with us, and if you weren't, with this from a streaming perspective, you don't know that one of the things that we've been looking forward to is a cassette of Derwood McDaniel talking about the very, very early days of ACB. Um, that cassette slash CD is still being worked on. In fact, I'm going to probably be the one to work on it, I think. Uh, it's not done yet. I should have it here in the next few days, and I'll give you an update about that next week. They had some issues in terms of trying to get it to a point where it could be digitized. So they asked me to see if, they, if I can help. And so we'll see how that goes. I'll let you know next week. The podcast for the last two sessions are up on ACB community uh so if you go to the acb community page they are there it's under people of vision 
And there is now, uh, after some exhaustive looking, etc., to find out exactly how many they had and how many more they need to make, a flash drive um, of People of Vision, which is the book that we are reading from. The Bard version is on that flash drive. Also, there are other versions in Word, etc., uh, available through large print or, uh, uh, or other, other, almost any factory you can think of is on that flash drive. It's $25. It's available from the mini mall, ACB mini mall. Uh, Carla also told me a few minutes ago that they also have, uh, conventions on other flash drives that you can also order if you've missed portions of conventions, uh, going back to Rochester and also last year as well. But that thumb drive is available. And we'll try and put this on the um, the community um, schedule for next week as well, so you can get the number in case you miss it. But it's 877-630-7190. And that will put you in touch with either Carla or someone else who will take your order with regard to the People of Vision uh, flash drive, and that's $25. And that's all I have, at least for now. All right. Thank you. So uh, one of the wonderful things about having that flash drive is that I was able to place the BRF on my BrailleSense. And that really helps in terms of uh, knowing the spelling of names and being able to search pretty quickly for information. Um, The BRF is in... Um, the English Braille, uh, not UEB. So I guess what I'd like to do is to start out with asking if you've read chapter one, teacher and me, could you please raise your hand? And I just want to know how many people uh, David, not to call on anyone. Give seven hands. All right. Oh, wait, wait, more. Okay, there's more. Yeah, so if you've read chapter one, raise your hand. Eleven hands right now. And, and I would be 12. I'm not raising mine. All right, perfect. Okay, so that's pretty good. Um, did anyone read the... Uh, front matter of the book, the preface, the introduction, acknowledgments. Did anyone read that? I read that. A lot of our hands are still up, but I did read it as well. Okay. So did I. did. <clears throat> okay. So I guess what I'd like to know is um, what are, you know, we talked about that last week. What are your thoughts or your feelings or opinions and if people could raise hands to talk i would appreciate it and stay muted until you're you're called on thank you very much so who has a thought or comment opinion on the front matter of the book all right well we have we have a hand uh, to get you started okay. uh, jane corona so jane hey jane actually i think my hand was still up from asking for you asking whether we uh we read the book or not. <laughs> I didn't raise my hand to say no. But, okay. but now that I'm here, um, <laughs> I guess um, it, it was amazing. It, it was like 
coming home, hearing about all these people whose names I've known for years. And um, I, you know, I think uh, it was probably Gerward McDaniel who ran over me in the doorway of the ACB office uh, way back <laughs> when I was a <laughs> young person. And he tripped over me or something. I was going in to pay my dues or something. But, <laughs> but uh, it, it was really interesting to to uh, hear all these names and remember all these people. So um, I, I really enjoyed that part. Um, so, yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Jane. Anyone else? My hand is up, Christy, but I don't know. So is are. so is mine, but that's okay. I don't know if Dave I'm can calling, tell. I'm care. calling on what I'm doing. I'm calling on people. So so you can tell which ones are calling for this perspective, this particular aspect. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. So, uh, Sandy. Okay. Um, I read the first chapter, and it was just mind-boggling. What it you know I I didn't realize so much happened during the first um i'd say about 200 years yeah well sandy right now i'm just asking sandy right now i'm just asking about who read the front matter and thoughts on the front matter but we'll we'll get to chapter one and it is amazing so you're talking about preface introduction introduction. right the preface introduction acknowledgments right well then Danielle? I can talk about it. Danielle, your hand is up. Hey, guys, unless you're going to talk about the um, the one question, please do lower your hand so there isn't confusion, but there shouldn't be because we're on the other question. But, yeah, Danielle, did you want to talk about that part? We can go back to Danielle. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead, Larry. I come at it from a slightly different perspective because I joined ACB and CCB much, 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 much later in life. But I knew some of the people. Uh, but the thing I noticed specifically about the preface and about the introduction, etc., and the background was how well done, how well constructed it was. If you were a brand new stranger to ACB, NCCB, which I was for the most part. I'd been in the student division decades earlier, but had forgotten most of that by the time I actually got involved in, in ACB slash CCB. Um, it was well constructed. So you come in brand new, not knowing anything, and they pretty much give you a quick history lesson within the first, oh, several pages of what you're looking at. You They, they describe who the people are. They tell you who they were, what they did, and what they accomplished. And I thought it was exceedingly well done. Thank you, Larry. All right. Chanel. Yes, so it's it feels like forever since I read The Front Matter, but I did read it. And, you know, last week I asked whether um, the McGiverns were cited and, you know, how they... And reading, I know we're going to get to chapter one, but I even had this thought as I read the front matter is 
you know, to what degree does the perception of a sighted person affect the history they write about blind people? And I don't know if that's a fair question, but it is something that I have wondered. So anyway, that's just a thought. Food for thought, food for discussion. Thank you, Chanel. Okay, Robert. I think that's me. My mother and David call me Robert when I'm in trouble, which you know. <laughs> okay, I just um, first of all, aren't, aren't you I always think, in trouble? <laughs> I take the fifth. Thank you. Um, first of all, whether you like the American Council, you don't. You should read the introduction and the prologue of the acknowledgments and so on. It, it's it's an academic treatise thus far. Okay, we get later into letter. I've read the book. We get later into letters when the average guy <laughs> says his thing about both sides. You know, it's just letters. It's what they are. But they tell you how they wrote the book, their interviews, what they did to prepare. It was an academic treatise thus far. I would think that especially our students and new people should read that introduction and, and go on and read the whole book. But as in any history, it's a struggle for the truth. Thank you. Thank you, Bob. Anyone else? Nope, you are clear. All right. Now we'll get to the question of Chapter 1. Just kind of individual, and I guess we'll call on Sandra first because she was going to share that. Um, but if you have something to say about Chapter 1, I'd like to uh, have David acknowledge you. Thank you. Sure thing. Um all right, so if anyone wants to talk about Chapter 1, go ahead and put your hand up. And if Sandy, you were... There we go. Well, Herbie's the okay. first hand. Oh, wait, go ahead, Sandy. Go ahead, Sandy. We'll have to go first. Um, go ahead. Well, it, it started, you know, with the whole history of, of blindness education and society's reaction to them and all. For, you know, the last 200 years, but there was a lot happened. And of course, the chapter ended at 1940, and a lot's happened since then too. But um, they, you know, told about how the Braille got started. Of course, I'd read that before, and the uh, the war, you know, how the the war blinded were uh, went through rehab. You know, just during after World War One is when the um, rehab for the blind got started and then the talking books and just it was amazing what all actually happened but you know it's it's still brought to my mind that you know we have to keep up with it and you know to make sure it doesn't get taken away from us yes thank you so much sandy okay herbie all right. So first of all, guys, a little bit of background on myself. So you'll understand where I'm coming from. So I am a history major currently, hoping to be done with school pretty soon, but that's neither here nor there. I'm also a political science minor. So you can also probably already appreciate how I might to view this uh, book just as a historical reference, because they do not cover this aspect of history in mainstream let me assure you. Um, <clears throat> that being said, my background in mainstream history, you know, I understand 
the times and you know that the book's referring to in fact i recently did a class on dealing with napoleon and, and you know i should have done focused on some interesting long-term influences of napoleon i did not fully understand his relation to how he influenced louis braille i thought that was very fascinating um <clears throat> I learned from another ACB call just um, the differences between how blind people were viewed in the 18th century versus the 19th century and how that actually did go downhill. This book doesn't go into that more, um, but Chanel at least knows what I'm talking about and anybody else that was on that uh, call where we had that uh, historian. Um, So what Sandy said about, you know, we could lose what we've gained definitely is very important. Now, I do not have any political, in terms of uh, blindness organizations, any favoritism to ACB, NFB, but, uh, you know, so I'm reading this completely as an open-minded individual. But there's definitely a lot of, you know, just where we've come over the years, you know, the and, and there's a lot of things that it's like, okay, I think about when reading this book. So, for instance sheltered workshops for making brooms and mops you know by today's standards to a lot of us that can be uh very controversial because it seems so demeaning but the technology in the 1930s and the opportunities is not the same as as it is today and so and back then the opportunities we had it was it goes into a whole, you know, there's a lot of philosophical discussions we can get into. For instance, should we be grateful for government programs or should we fight for more equal opportunity? Stuff like that, you know, just. Um, but it also, I think one of the biggest takeaways I'm getting from this book is whenever we enact future legislation, how can we think beyond just the times? You no, know, what can we. Is there a way to anticipate the future a little bit? Okay, no, blind workshops, definitely a good thing back in the day. Randolph Shepard Act, I mean, that is still very much in use today. I myself was um, an active user of it back in the day when I did vending. Social Security, I'm sure I speak for many of us when I say that we all rely on SSI and... I would have loved to have, I wish the book, maybe it'll go into, or there's other books that would go into the means test and how that determined income levels with SSI, because that to me today is a very controversial issue. And I have, I know I wonder if that had not been introduced, you know, would we, could we've actually employed, you know, or at least had more blind people out of the poverty level because, you know, we are inhibited by, things which do create situations where sometimes, you know, I've heard of people relying on having their money in bank accounts that have uh, have other people's names on them. And that goes into issues of, well, they can exert control over you and stuff like that. And, you know, when, but it's caused by legislation that's supposed to be helping us be fully independent. And so, you know, um, uh, and, and so I just find it fascinating, you know, where we've come from, um, the book. I think one of the things I did take off issue a little bit with the authors is sometimes they tell us how to think and how to view the people like they labeled uh, the group in Wisconsin as militant. And if I was writing the book, I would 
mention it more as like, you know, they had a more militant-like aspect, but I'd want the reader to decide for themselves, okay, are they militant? Are they justified? You know, I, I think the reader should come to their own conclusion um, to understand the history, you know, and to really take in the full context. But again, that's my historian background talking, so maybe other people might feel differently, which is totally fine. Um, I was also intrigued early on with that one instructor who was teaching mathematics to blind people, you know, because that is a subject I know I struggle with, you know, uh, more. Mm -hmm. I'd love to see more blind mathematic teachers if you guys understand math, uh, because, and, you know, just a whole lot of other range of issues too, mainstream versus school for the blind, you know, what is their, what was their place back then and today? And, the Braille Wars, and then I promise I'll be done, they reminded me of, you know, I personally, I think that it's sad that um, a lot of people don't know what raised print looks like today, because that can be beneficial in reading room numbers sometimes that uh, don't have Braille, but they have raised print or letters. So, you know, that's a skill that I at least know with uppercase letters. So I think it was kind of sad that that system did go away. I understand why Braille is, you know, because it was it's economical, it's more universal, and I, I, that's definitely a good thing. Um, but just I didn't realize it took till after war, World War One for it to become universal. So that was something, you know. I just just you know because sometimes we hear about Louis Braille. Okay, he developed Braille, so you automatically think okay, Braille became the standard. Well, no, it took nearly a century for that to happen, and you know just. I guess my other observation is mainstream blindness versus people like me who were born blind. You know, what do, how much do, how much does, how much do we owe what we have in society to people who lost their life, uh, sight later on in life and were therefore in a much stronger position to advocate for blindness rights and whatnot that otherwise it'd be just much more easy to shove us off into you know, the depths of make us second or third class citizens. And so, you know, how much do we owe to people like that? I think is a very interesting question. And, you know, who is best to, you know, judge blind people, blind people or sighted people? So that was my takeaway from chapter one of the book. Wow, Herbie, sounds like you really got into it. And that's awesome. Thank you for your perspective. And I only read the chapter this morning. So in between. Wow, that's awesome. All right. Anyone else? Nope. You are clear. Okay. Um, Okay. So I have, um, I just started kind of going through the book and asking a few, a few questions. So the chapter um, um, discusses a chronological survey of the history of uh of blindness and um no by no means does it cover everything but it i I like how the chapter um sort of bullet pointed a few things and so my first um statement and question is um In early modern Europe, blindness has been and will be present in all human societies, but the reactions and responses to blindness um, 
by both sighted and blind people have varied greatly over the centuries. This survey, um, e- this survey of events that began in Central Europe, um, both an Italian and Catholic, an Italian Catholic and a British Puritan uh, contributed significantly to the revolutionary transformation taking place in the 17th century. Both of these gentlemen had lost their sight later in life. And so how did the, how did Galileo and Milton's contributions affect the school of thought regarding blindness? And how do you think they felt when they met each other? All right, Chanel, go ahead. Okay, I don't think that they would have affected the concept of blindness terribly much. Um, I suppose perhaps sighted people were impressed. Oh, you know, these blind people, well, more so with Milton, wrote, you know, these amazing works, but he had been able to see. And I'm sure when they met each other, it was probably especially for um, Milton because he met Galileo, you know, as quite an older uh, person. When Galileo was older, that for Milton, it was a great kind of novelty, like, oh, we get to meet somebody famous type thing. But I don't know if Galileo would have been much affected. So um, I don't know. I don't think they were as influential as, let's say, the people that followed. Um, oh, what is his name? Molyneux. I'm pro- I, I read the Braille and read it out loud. So I'm probably butchering the pronunciation. Well, but, they did too. They, they said Molinex. <laughs> oh, I, I was thinking X. N-E-U-X is more like N or N-E-U. Oh, I know, me too. So anyway, <laughs> I read it out loud to Herbie and me, so that's we got discussing it. But oh, cool. anyway, yeah, that's, uh, I don't, so what I mean is they didn't probably influence it that much, not until these other philosophers came along. Thank you, Chanel. All right, um, Robert or Bob Acosta. Yes, thank you. Uh, I agree with this young lady who just spoke because, yes, uh, they were looking for, in the 17th century, two blind people. They certainly were important to all of us, Paradise Lost and the the telescope and so forth. I don't believe they thought of organizing blind people. Then we had the guilds, as you know, in Europe, which were powerful, where blind guys got jobs through the the guilds. And the attitude uh, toward the blind (laughs) <laughs> was it seemed to me um just that they felt sorry for us they pitied us uh and we that's what the we became in the 20th century with a lot of help from good people um rebels with a cause we said we we will not be pitied we're first class citizens and that's the way it is but i don't think those two would uh, although as great as they are would be considered that they're just blind people. They said these are the first two. They could have started with Homer, I guess. They, there was Dr. French wrote uh, Homer to somebody. <laughs> I forgot the superintendent of the California School for the Blind. But mm-hmm. uh, that's my opinion. But uh, you might disagree with me. Thank you. Thank you, Bob. Okay. And Herbie again. Herbie? 
So I have a thought, and this is just my theory. I want to make sure I say this right off the bat. I suspect, and at least in the case of Galileo, there was a lot of people rejoicing over his blindness and especially the irony because, okay, so this is my history background talking again, guys. So Galileo grew up, you know, was around during the Catholic era and the church was very repressive, was very anti-science, very new knowledge. And so I know there was many that were against the telescope. So I would imagine that many church, you know, faithful people were probably thinking, oh, well, you know, Galileo went blind because God took away his eyesight because he, you know, saw helped saw things he was not meant to see. And so this was a punishment from God. So, you know, I would imagine a lot of people took that view towards Galileo, at least, if not publicly, then at least, you know, privately. <clears throat> so that, that that's a theory of mine, you know, and I guess as to Galileo and the other guy meeting, I mean, well, if you develop, if you lose something, how do you feel if you uh, meet somebody else and it's like, oh, I have somebody like me. Hey, that's pretty cool. You know, they, but, um, oh, now were you saying something? Yeah, they didn't. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was going to say, I didn't think they knew each other. I think it got a little bit confused there, but, uh, um, have you know if they had have met, you know they would. No, have. they met. They just they didn't met. know one of them was blind at the time. One wasn't. Okay. So, but I, I I think that the one thing that does I was thinking about this though too. I've heard a lot of people over the years on various social media say, "Oh, um, somebody was unmuted." Please so mute. You know. Um. You know, um, I've heard, you know, I, I think maybe Europeans may have had, I don't know if this is true or not, because I've heard a lot of people say that, you know, sometimes the European attitude towards blindness is a little bit more developed than the American attitude towards blindness. And so I, you know, I'm just kind of thinking ahead here, but I wonder if they've had more time to adapt to how they think about blind people. I don't know for sure myself on that one, if that is true or not um i can only go by what other people said but you know but i think there was also a range of curiosity too i mean you know people had nothing they didn't have the tv or anything like that back then you know they only had the reading and so you know reading a philosopher's book on the blindness or whatever you know for them would be like you know Today, maybe like the equivalent of us seeing a blind person, if we were sighted and led normal lives and we saw a blind person for the first time on TV or saw a social media post from a blind person, you know, it was probably more of that concept to people back in the day. And of course, you know, you did have Homer, who was blind way, way back, who wrote, you know, the Iliad and Odyssey. So, you know, there was probably already a bit of respect for blind poets slash philosophers which you know kind of interlinked so you know just kind of probably a mixed reaction is what i would say based on the you know what i had just said thank you just to let you know christy you've got a half an hour left okay thank you okay anyone else on this question Nope, you're clear. I just kind of want to weigh in, and I actually think that by for the time and for how blindness was thought of, I think people, yes, they attributed some of the 
um, what were accomplished by Galileo and Milton to that they had sight prior. Um, but I do think that their having done something so accomplished, and especially Milton, with his books, um, Paradise Lost and Paradise Revisited, I think that um, I think that did have a, a bit of a profound effect on beginning to think about blindness in a new way. Um, you know, we take it for granted, but back then, that was basically unheard of. So my, you my, have a hand. Okay, go sorry, ahead. You wanted to finish, but you had a hand. Or you go ahead. Want to finish your thought. Yeah, go ahead. Um, Don Worth, Don. Oh, I guess not. Okay. Let me lower his hand. All right. Okay. Um, go ahead then. Okay. So my second question. In 1693, a letter of William Mullinux is how they pronounced it, but I, anyone who's French or knows French, correct us, to John Locke. Um, in, the, in the final decade of the 17th century, a letter written by William Mullinux to philosopher John Locke sparked an important discussion. In his letter, Mullinux asked a question that soon found a prominent place in the philosophical debate of the following era. And the question was, suppose a man born blind and now an adult and uh, by uh, touching could distinguish between a cube and a sphere. Suppose then the cube and sphere uh, placed on a table and that blind man was made to see. The question is whether by his sight before he touched them. So did he see based on his sight or did he see based on his having touched the sphere and the cube? Could he see because he saw them or could he see because touching them gave him a picture of what they looked like in his head so he could actually determine uh, what they were. So, so my question is, um, well, four, four writers stated that uh, it was negative, that it, was, it wasn't because he had touched them that he could not um, translate in his head uh, that the sphere was a sphere and that the cube was a cube, um, except by seeing them. So 
this caused um, further exploration of the nature of sensation. So um, what do you all think of that description um, based on um, Molinux's letter um, in his essays? And do you think that had a basis for um, how the philosophy of a blindness and, and, and how people can function, what did that have to do with um, their functionality? Um, well, your only hand so far is Herbie. So. Okay, Herbie. Herbie. All right. Um, hopefully more people will weigh on this because I do, even though I do enjoy hearing myself talk, but... Uh, <laughs> Um, you know, uh, so I've had discussions over the years with various well-meaning individuals that want to pray for my sight to come back. And I've tried to talk to them a little bit about, okay, you don't know me. You don't know what it would be like to, if I was to become sighted. Because, I, you know, so I've been blind from birth. And I've thought about this. It's like, okay, well, maybe I could learn. But, I mean, A, the brain's adapted to me being blind. But more importantly... When a child is born, they don't immediately know what a shape is or what a cube or whatever. You know, they have to learn and be taught. That's why we have school. So people just automatically assume, like, if we could just see tomorrow, we would be, you know, our lives would be so perfect because we could see. But they don't actually stop to think about what all that truly encompasses. Um, So I would have to... If I was to get my sight tomorrow, I would actually probably have to learn to use my eyes and see what a cube looks like. And I have, you know, especially my age, I don't know how well I would process it. You know, I think it would be a lot easier if I was, like, say, two years old as opposed to, you know, what I am now. But, um, you know, and I think there's been more recent studies that have proven this to be accurate, you know, to a degree that, you know, people that get sight back or whatever, you know, do struggle with this. So I think that, you know, it's proven to be true, but I thought, I thought it was interesting just how that, you know, um, the book said that, you know, the, the philosopher said that there is an emotional response to eyesight that other senses don't seem to require like touch. Um, and, you know, that just, you know, raises interesting questions about what is it to be sighted? What do you, you guys out there, what, what is it for you to see? Do you, you know, you don't just, it's like you don't just see, you have to interpret. And I, I, that, you know, that raises some interesting questions, which never having sight, I don't know how to fully respond to. But I thought that was interesting, an interesting thought. Thank you. Anyone else have yes. any comments? You have a new hand. Okay. Um, Mary Beth. Mary Beth. Wow, and thank you for getting my name right, and I apologize for being late. Hey. Um, <laughs> I, um, I, I think, it, at first I have to say, this, this part of the chapter uh, made me a little bit impatient. I was kind of like, so what? You know, but I, 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 but I think I think that it does speak a lot to the whole and um, 
idea of, of, of functioning. And, um, and I think really, you know, a lot to actually what Herbie was saying, the whole thing about how, how we're perceived. I mean, statistically in terms of, you know, employment statistics and stuff, it's, it's much more difficult in general for a blind person to get a job because of partially because of not, not entirely because of the inability to make eye contact. That's a huge, among some employers, that's like a huge deal. Um, so I guess for me, you know, looking, looking at, at this whole, um, discussion, and I think, I think Herbie's right that a lot of this stuff, depth perception and that sort of thing is, is learned, that it's not even so much about the mechanics. It's, it's, as it is in, in, in most things even today, you know, it's, it's a lot about this whole visceral, um, way that some people, um, uh, consider blindness that 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 is you know such a huge barrier um i mean it 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 was then um it is it is now you know certainly you know some things have changed but i guess in that sense i thought it was it was you know if at first I didn't think it was like worth putting in there and then I got kind of, well, oh, yeah, I guess it, I guess it really is. I guess, I guess this was a contributor, you know, um, if I was writing the book, I, I probably would have lost it out of there, but guess what? I wasn't writing the book and don't have the uh, talent to write the book. So I have to go with them. I guess that's, that's kind of how I, I perceived it. Thank you, Mary Beth. Uh, Anyone else? Um, you, um, Yep, you have uh, Chanel, and you have about 19 minutes to go. So Okay. Chanel, right, and be, then we'll move on. Yeah, I'll be quick. So I found this actually for me to be the most fascinating part of the whole book. Um, one, it reminded me of what Herbie has said, how sight is often a can be just as much of a disability. And, you know, how much can we perceive through our um, senses, especially touch. And, you know, that Diderot um, philosopher, you know, was basically what can the blind teach the sighted about touch or the senses? And so <laughs> that in itself. And then also, it's just an interesting question to contemplate because we all perceive things somewhat differently. And some species, some people are able to process things more in a spatial manner. So would they have an easier time if, would some people recognize a cube more quickly than others per se, if they did gain the sense of sight, you know, just by looking. So anyway, that just came to mind just now, but I'm done. I'm sorry to keep this going. <laughs> one of the things that, thank you. One of the things that I, I just was thinking about was how philosophers state, you know, believe that it really didn't, um, equate to us uh, translating and um, in our brains. And yet mathematicians did. They said basically that you could uh, interpret by not being able to see just by touching. Um, so I thought that was quite interesting. So... Um, my next question is basically and uh, talking about the next big thinker, um, who was a French philosopher, and you actually mentioned him, um, uh, Chanel Diderot, and they said, which I thought was kind of funny, he 
he was uh, he was uh, exiled or punished for his thinking, but not regarding the blindness. So he had a letter, um, a letter on, um, a letter on the blind for use with those who see in 1749. So what, what did he espouse? What did he indicate that basically they argued about for 50 years? Don't have any hands at the moment. No. So, um, are you guys? You guys think I'm getting too 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 philosophical here? What about the cataract surgeries um, begun by um, uh, Lawrence Heister? What do you guys think of that? That was a, a something that was pretty brand new, um, and. To the point that um, they had never tried anything like that before. And I know I had a a friend who grew up, that was her cause of blindness was cataracts, um, uh, partial vision. And she couldn't, um, she couldn't, they didn't get corrected. And I remember her having very thick glasses. But back in, in, in that time, they, they operated and and apparently they tried to fake which i thought was funny they tried to fake recoveries um and it's surprising to me that they actually continued and look at how today getting a cataract removed is no big deal well you have some people who i think wish to respond to this okay go ahead mary beth I think that, you know, considering the the terrible medical conditions of those days, you know, it really it really highlighted for me the desperation of the people. You know, to be able to say, Okay, I wanna do this. I mean, today, you know, nobody likes to have surgery, but you know, like you said, Christy, you know, today it's 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 pretty pretty routine. But for that point to to actually take that risk, I thought I thought was a really it really emphasized how desperate these people must have been and how horrific the the conditions you know under which they lived most of the time were that 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 they would that so many of them even though the surgeries for the most part, you know, it was a fake and they mostly didn't work. And, and all these people had these claims of, you know, you're going to be able to see. And then they, you know, that, that so many people would try it, you know, just basically underlined that, you know, how, how desperate people were to, to, to try to, to better their, their living conditions. Thank you. And when else? You, you got Herbie. So yeah, I was going to tell you what first comes to my mind when hearing about cataract surgery back in the day, 
Very painful. Okay. What Mary Beth talked about is uh, very good points, but I want to elaborate on <clears throat> something which I think also would explain even more why you would want to more likely than not fake the surgeries. Back then, you did not have anesthetic. Yeah. A cataract surgery is not just, oh, let's put you under and take the thing out. Is let's tie you down to a table and, you know, maybe some doctors had some form of anesthetic. It uh, probably was more in the form of alcohol than anything else. So we might get you, you know, drunk. So that was probably more often than not the surgical conditions you would find yourself in. So it would be a lot more easier to fake the surgery and you know a lot of medical stuff back in the day with what we well people might see today we have quacks i don't know but back then just with the nature of medicine you know it was only one in many things that were faked um you know if you ever read mark twain books you know which take place a century later you read a lot of how people would you know a lot of times just be so trusting and um, not question what uh, they were being told because everybody was so, you know, there was not the mass communication that we have today. So it was, you didn't have much of a choice back in the day. And so I think it was, you know, I think, I think we have to re- read these uh, things as what was the actual context of life back in the day and, you know, fakery and stuff like that. You know, it was, you, I think you would find it was not that uncommon that it goes well beyond you know just things like cataract surgery. So, thank you. Um, Your hands are cleared. Okay, so the next um, the next event basically is 1784. The school was founded in Paris uh, for uh, for blind um, people by Henri and. Um, this basically changed some of the thinking f- for the potential of, of blind people. Um, this, you know, again, this is groundbreaking. We, we don't, can you imagine life um, before this? There were no schools. There was no education. Um, when I was listening to a, a play, um, they were talking about in the schools how they had these big, huge volumes of of embossed regular print. And people labored over how to teach and how to read. And, of course, this, um, you know, brought on the... Um, the development of the what, what is it called the night night dots for the 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 um, people who were um, trying to read at night uh, so that they could communicate and and basically conduct spying or other kind of reconnaissance. But can you imagine being? 11 years old, and you wonder how bright Louis Braille was to 
to think about yourself at the age of 11. Think about your children and your grandchildren at the age of 11. And imagine ourselves having the wherewithal to think about developing and um, um, adapting the language, the Braille, the system into a more readable form. And then can you imagine living in the time of the, the dot wars, the reading wars, the New York print, the, um, I remember when I was in school, um, they, they showed me that prior to Louis Braille, um, to the system being adapted, that they were using moon Braille. And um, does anybody remember that? No. Nope. Some of you nope. old enough to remember the moon Braille, moon type? Wasn't moon Braille, moon type. No, not me. I'm um, old, but not that old. Not I. Too young. Too young? Bob, you're older Quiet. than me. No, I just learned <laughs> moon Braille. It, uh, it was print, wasn't it? Large print type thing. You know, I can't remember. I just remember being introduced to it before, you know, when I was learning Braille in the first grade, I was shown the moon type. Mm-hmm. And and I don't remember what it feels like. Does anybody remember what the moon type felt like? I, I think it was know. a variant on on print. It there wasn't it wasn't just embossed print as I recall. I think I've 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 felt it too. So I guess that makes me older than you, Bob. That's um, right. Um, <laughs> Take a note. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, but that I think, you know what, if you're desperate enough to read, yeah, I know, you know, I, I think, I know for me, you know, growing up without a lot of books around, yeah, now I do sound older than Bob, um, but, you know, that I'd read, I'd read British Braille, I'd read English Braille, I'd read, you know, uncontracted Braille, anything, anything. Um, j- just to have an- another book, you know, or a book that I wanted to read. And I, I would guess that, that that would be maybe how they felt, too. Yeah. I try to put myself in the place of, you know, how it might be to live during that time. Um, and then, of course, you know, a lot of history takes place and, and people can read that. Um, what, what I was... Um, surprised about two things the the first thing that i was surprised about was that um well in a way that europe had a better take on the blinded veterans and their services than we did especially during world war ii that why the united states didn't learn from the mistakes or whatever from from the european countries i don't know but it said we only had 500 um blinded veterans christy you're talking about world war one and we got into it late that's one oh, excuse. yeah i'm not we saying it's the only it. excuse but we yeah. were way behind the british phrase 1917 guys, you know they were way ahead of us and because they also, suffered in the war. Also, Chris, you got five Hang minutes on. left. You got okay, five thank minutes you. left. 
Well, this is her, but it's just going to say real quick, you know, so yeah, World War One. you know, we, World War One had been going on for four years in mm-hmm. Europe by the time we got involved. And so there wasn't much time for us to adapt. We also have had more of, especially at that time, a lot more of a hands-off government approach. There's a lot... There's a lot to understand about the different time periods and how they affected, you know, blind people because there's a lot of and stuff that's interwoven, such as federal involvement. You know, a lot of that didn't yes. really occur till after World War II. You know, I was reading about the cup, the setbacks and stuff during the interwar period, but it wasn't just blind people who suffered. Like even our own military during that time was cut back severely. You know, even before the Great Depression. And so it was a lot of you have to keep in mind that our attitude at that time was a lot more fun for yourself. Yes. And that has affected over the years, you know, like the different legislations and why some things might seem so commonsensical, but I, I, you need to understand the culture and the times. And... I, you know, it wasn't until really the 1930s you really had federal interest in blindness. You had the Randolph Shepard Act. You had, you know, the Social Security. You know, which, you know, that all all because of the New Deal. You know, so these right things. and and speaking about that, one of the things that happened, we had a setback um, in, um, I believe it was 1939. Don't quote the me. I'm not. Test, yes. The means test was started for Social Security, and it hadn't been. And so we had already lost something, and we've never gained that back. And I remember um, being in the CCB where the NFB wanted to have a social disability insurance uh, payment where by just by being blind, or visually impaired, we would um, have an income. And I, it, that would have changed the trajectory of how we live life today had that been uh, enacted. So I know that we are running out of time. You do have one um, more hand. It's Bob. I don't know if you wanted to take it, but Bob, um, Bob Acosta's hand is up. Yeah, we, it's 1058, so I wish I could. Um, save your thought for next week. Okay. Um, I guess what I'd like to do is we'll go ahead and, and read chapter two for next week, but we'll spend the first part um, talking about kind of the takeaways from chapter one and go on into chapter two. Chapter two is two and a half hours of reading, so get started early. Um, we can't wait till the last minute on this one. And basically, it is 1940 to 1954, um, the founding of the National Federation of the Blind. Again, I'd like to thank my host, David Dunphy. I'd like to thank my um, our streamer, Larry Gassman. And thank you all for joining us and bring your friends next week. Blessings to you all. Have a wonderful day.